How does the activist land the corporate dollars to make change? How does the child leave a movement? Hello Greta, anyone. And how did the millennial convince the boomer? What do these situations have in common? They had make or break moments where influence was created and light bulbs went off. I'm Rebecca Nedelik, and this is Nuance of Impact, a podcast to get lost in the stories of those making change. Together, we'll chat, learn, and ponder the nuanced make-or-break moments that make social impact so impactful. All right. I'm so excited about today's episode because I am here with Mariko Kubota. Mariko and I met three years ago now. In my past life, I had been doing community investment consulting, and I'd been digging through LinkedIn and looking at companies that I was so inspired by. And one of those companies was Mountain Equipment Co-op. And I found her LinkedIn profile, guessed her email like 30 different times until I got it and eventually sat down for virtual meeting. And after that, I think we've just kind of remained friends with each other since. So I'm so excited to have you. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Thank you for being here and taking time out of your out of your day. And I know you're on mat leave right now. You have number two. That's right. Sleeping in the next room. That's right. Yeah. So we might hear him wake up at some point. <laughs> ah, that's totally fine. Mariko, you have been working in the corporate purpose space for years. You're now working more in the partnership area. Mm-hmm. What really led you to finding passion about social purpose? Right. It's a big question because it kind of takes me way, way back and it's all interconnected with, I think, the pathway of my career. I think social purpose at the core really is about the tenets of inclusivity, social justice, belonging, creating social change and building community. Okay, but how would you define it? Really, what is the why? Why does an organization or a company exist to make social change for society or for its community? I think it's really become a more important tool for corporations um, as of late because it's a way in which corporations can really demonstrate to their customer base and also their employee base um, their values. You know, it's just like as people, you and I make choices every day that reflect our values. And so social purpose gives us that sort of navigational tool to be able to say, yes, we're going to do that. No, we're not going to do that. Oh, this crisis happened. So we now know how to respond in the appropriate way because we know who we are, why we exist to serve our people and what our values are. Because of course you've worked for some major companies like Mountain Equipment Co-op is no small fish. Mm-hmm. When you've been in the position where you're sort of, you know, advocating and, and being that voice of social purpose mm-hmm. um, in a large organization, how do you advocate for companies to live it out when it comes to like hard situations? Mm. Oh my goodness. There were such good examples during my time at MEC where that happened. But uh, at Mountain Equipment Co-op, It really helps that first and foremost, the organization is a co-op. And so it's a member-driven organization. So it's already values-based and has already always operated from a place of caring about its products, but ultimately trying to help people be active outdoors. And so you can see that reflected in the employee base. You can see that reflected in the membership that buys there. Um, But uh, I guess... When it comes to how you live it out, 
I guess I should give you the example of the social purpose at MEC and it'll give you the rundown of how it actually comes to be and how it reflects or doesn't reflect. Mm -hmm. And so I worked with the CEO at the time, um, now former CEO, David Labister, and the social purpose that was created was to inspire and enable all Canadians to live active outdoor lifestyles. And so it was about, you know, the what and how we do, that we do as a retailer is we have products and services of great outdoor gear that we give Canadians. But the why we exist as a company is to inspire and enable all Canadians to live active outdoor lifestyles. But then when we sort of said, this is the social purpose we want, we had to do a check-in with ourselves and say, so are we, have we been, can we be? And when we did our own self-reflection, it became pretty evident that no, we are not inclusive of all Canadians. We're not reflective of all Canadians in our staff base. And we did some market research to understand that externally. And we learned that you know, we could be perceived as a bit intimidating for a lot of people who are new to the outdoors. We did an internal audit. We realized that we were hiring a sort of specific set of staff, especially staff that are really good and experienced at the outdoors, but not necessarily reflective of the community we serve. And then a really, really obvious audit was reviewing our marketing and branding material and recognizing that a lot of it was all white people. <laughs> and that I think was like probably the most visual and blatant example of if we really want to live this social purpose, we have to acknowledge that we actually really have not been inclusive to date. Therefore have like a really big shift to make to move forward to live this purpose. And so that's what sparked David's apology officially to all Canadians that we had been I think marketing predominantly to a white community and reflecting to Canadians that is predominantly white people who go climb mountains or go skiing <laughs> when that's not true. Um, and, you know, even as CEO, he was going out to speak to students at universities. He was like, this isn't the base that we're working with. How do I make my company more welcoming? And that was really, really powerful. Um, and then of course there was crises around gun related manufacturing that came up in my time that I was there. Was this because Mount Equipment Co-op like was selling guns? No, we've never sold guns, but um, because MEC had certain brands that were connected to um, a, uh, a company that uh, manufactured gun parts, etc. Yeah, and so when that happened, uh, it was again sort of this internal review of what are our values? What do we care about? What is our, also because we're a membership driven company, listening to the members and what they had to say about that. And so that was when there was the, the decision to, to really remove those brands and those products from the shelves at that point in time. So that was really good. And I think another good example of that is cultural appropriation. And there's been a couple examples of that along the way, but just products that ended up having some level of cultural appropriation and us as the retailer that selects different SKUs saying we can't have products that do this and we need to talk to the brand that's doing that as well to not only educate ourselves but educate our other brands about it. When I, um, what I loved about the story and you told, you've of course told me the story about um, the ad campaigns and the branding and, and sort of doing an audit and then speaking out about it mm -hmm. and what I loved about that so much is um, 
is MEC didn't wait to be called out on it. Mm -hmm. They just did it. And there's so much, you know, coming from a corporate background and working mm -hmm. for corporations. Um, that's just, it seems so unheard of for right. an organization to be like, to blow their, to blow their own whistle, especially right. when it comes to, you know, something like recognizing a lack of inclusion to, um, to, you know, especially minority groups and, and people of color. Yeah. Um, what do you say that like, you know, they were called out, we were called out. Um, but it, that wasn't what spawned things. It kind of, the calling out happened at the same time these internal conversations were already ha like happening. Mm. And so the authenticity was already there within the core internal team. Mm. Um, when we would get a response from, you know, like an outdoor enthusiast who would say, you're not reflective. Like, can you include people more like me? We're like, yes. <laughs> So we could ask, we could re literally respond enthusiastically, like, yes. Mm. And like, you know, as an internal staff person, being able to say, absolutely. And this is actually something we're working on. I think too, especially now, you know, it's not just inclusion, equity, diversity, like it's not a trend anymore. It's mandatory. I think the difference between companies have really become leaders mm -hmm. in equity, diversity, inclusion is companies who, um, who are doing it from a really authentic place. And mm because of that, they're able to respond like, yes, yes, you're right. We know you're right. And here's what we're doing to fix it. And the part of, we know you're right. Like mm -hmm. we, we understand that your points are valid and, and we've already, we flagged it. And I want you to know that we're doing something about it. And that's different than saying like, we'll review our policies mm -hmm. or we'll review our practices. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It was really powerful. It was very powerful as a staff person to be able to, to, be able to not only work on it within the inside, but actually see the executive team and, and the leadership really own it as well and come from a place of help us with this, you know, um, and, and it came from community investment. It came from then market. Like I was within the marketing team. My boss was the chief marketing officer. And so the fact that I could talk to her about this being a really big issue within the community and our partners and the not-for-profits we were funding, and then that being then integrated into marketing and we know what do our products reflect and who are our customers that we're reflecting and then that then translating into operations and who are our staff mm -hmm. and then i loved the line at one point where it was like products like could we envision new products that are more inclusive like people always think asian people know how to cook rice we always cook in a rice cooker so when we go camping i'd love it if we had a solar panels rice cooker for people like me who want to go camping that would be so great you guys really took it to every level and how um was it hard to convince like different areas and different departments to get on board with it it wasn't extremely hard i think that it really helped that we had a CEO and our CMO were very supportive of the social purpose. There were absolutely executives that were kind of shrugging their shoulders and just more saying, what is this? And what does it mean for my department in particular? And also then what does it mean for my team members? Like how do I operationalize social purpose in the finance department? How do I operationalize social purpose within the operations team and we're running the stores? How do I operationalize it? Um, you know, within products and like what products we procure, what products we make. 
And in, and being able to answer that and support those team members was paramount. You know, it was, again, because of that social purpose, it was so ironic that the finance department was probably one of the most diverse in terms of BIPOC people who were in finance. And like, I recognized it when I walked into MEC for the first time, I was like, here I am as an Asian woman coming into the marketing department, running community investment and sponsorships. And predominantly other people who looked like me were in the finance department. Um, and within operations, again, it was that recognition that if our stores are staffed with only white people, what does that say to the, the members, the customers who come in who aren't white? So that was very big for operations. And then for products, like I just mentioned, like we can all of a sudden envision different kind of products that meet different needs when we're thinking about different people or we have the right mix of people procuring products and producing products for the wider audience that we're serving to include all Canadians. And so thinking about things like rice cookers um, would be like a whole new um, arena for the product team instead of constantly thinking about sort of the the traditional products that are always seen on the shelves. Mm, wow. Yeah, that's really interesting too to be able to look at some of those. I always come like supporting departments because you're right. Like that's always the question of what is this? Why is it important? Why is it relevant? And and appreciating that you know it's not just about community. It's not just about our products, it's about understanding the different experiences of our employees based on their backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And so you started your career in not-for-profit, right? International development, working for CEDA, the Canadian International Development Agency. And I was running a internship program for them at the University of British Columbia, hiring recent grads to work for NGOs around the world. What was really important from my experience there was learning about participatory community development. So when somebody comes from a, a more developed country, it's not about them coming in and fixing programs and providing expertise, but really participating in what already exists and adding to, um, adding value, sharing skills, but from a participatory lens rather than a expert lens. And it was from that background that then I went to work for Vancouver Foundation. When I was at the Vancouver Foundation, I did a graduate diploma in social innovation. And it was funded by McConnell Foundation, who is well known for funding such innovative and forward thinking initiatives. And they really believed in social innovation. And I was part of the first cohort of professionals to join that program. And they intentionally recruited people from not-for-profit, government and corporate sectors. And they brought us together to learn about systems change, uh, design thinking, complexity theory. So it was everything from thinking about, you know, how do we change systems and understand what the root cause of a social issue is? How do we use the concept as design thinking, like from, you know, IDEO, who's famous for innovation and design, and thinking about, multiple lenses and perspectives offering different ways to view a problem and the the wealth of that mix of thinking being able to create better solutions um, better better problem solving skills and then complexity theory looking at social issues and not saying 
you know, is a cause and effect issue. You know, this social issue doesn't exist because this happened. It's a lot more complex. There are many elements that are impacting that social issue. And so being part of this cohort mixed from people in all sectors was the first time I was really able to understand why can't government fix these things really well? Why can't corporations fix these things really well? Why can not-for-profits not fix these things very well? We're good at some things and we're bad at some things, and but the mix of them create a whole new game for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also the first time we got to kind of hear with one another as colleagues the internal pitfalls that you never really you know, you never really gain insight into until you have a friend on the inside and you can say, why does, why do things happen that way there? That really is that part about like understanding the internal side of things. I remember our first conversation and I was in consulting and, and you had said, you, we talked a little bit about career and you said something that's really important is understanding from a corporate lens, um, the role that corporate politics plays. Right. And why, how essential it is to sort of furthering impact. And it was this real aha moment for me that Mm. you from the consultant perspective like going in and seeing things from the outside versus having that internal understanding of people's motivations you know people's fears people's biases and being able to navigate that in order to sort of further an organization further a strategy and, and further impact um what made you want to get into that coming out of um, the not-for-profit space and into corporate? Yeah, so when I was in the graduate diploma in social innovation, actually one of my group team members was my then boss at TELUS. So Jill Schnarr, she's now the VP of Community Affairs at TELUS, um, but she was a team member. And one of the first exercises they made us do when we first got to Waterloo uh, was a nemesis exercise because we were coming from not-for-profit government and corporations. We all had to say how we would describe each sector and it wasn't pretty of course so you know not-for-profits were named things like lazy incompetent lack business acumen lack structure things like that and then corporations were like corrupt you know you know focused on profit etc and each one of us were just shocked like we were just so hurt and like it was so funny sitting across from Jill and both of her and I being like oh my gosh you think that about my sector and vice versa and through the whole program we learned about social innovation complexity and systems change and we came out of it with me really feeling like wow in the corporate space you have the ability to make change at a different scale than when you work for a not-for-profit. You know, businesses do B2B, business to business, businesses do B2C, business to customers. The incredible reach that a telecommunications company like TELUS has is much bigger than one small not-for-profit. And so the possibility of impact was really profound on me um, in meeting colleagues like Jill from the corporate sector. And uh, I had another friend who was the assistant deputy minister for the Department of Social um, Assistance at that point. And she said to me, you know, Mariko, at one point from the not-for-profit sector, I highly recommend you go into corporate and then you come to government afterwards. And so that's kind of what has happened. Not that I planned that, but um, Jill kindly, you know, shortly 
after we graduated from that program said, come on over to my side. And so she recruited me over to TELUS and it was definitely a, a, a big change for me and an important change in, in career path for me at that time. Mm. Now, so now you're in government. Um, what would you say when you look back and obviously, I mean, you still do corporate work, you still support corporations. Mm -hmm. When you look back at corporate and being large corporations, like what are some of the, what was like a key lesson that you learned? Oh, I learned so much working in corporate and it's related to um, politics and, and strategy that I think you alluded to earlier. And for me, it was just really important when I started in the corporate space to listen to understand what are people's motivations, what are the concerns, what are driving, you know, programs or projects currently. And um, it was really important to understand that, of course, now I'm working for a telecommunications company, the sort of next best product in telecommunications at that time was fiber optic cable, you know, the fastest internet possible. Um, and I, I'm benefiting from that now where I live because I can work from home and I can function very well because of fiber optic directly to my home. But just understanding things like what's the product, what's the, what's the change that needs to happen. And so then, okay, how do then we understand how this new product can change community positively and negatively? Fiber optic means you have to literally dig up the ground to lay it in, but it also means incredible possibilities for those communities, especially rural communities, as you can imagine, in being able to link in um, and uh, understanding different uh, executives and what they're personally passionate about, how they engage their team members to create a team culture was really important because then at TELUS, we were funding and had the ability to fund many different not-for-profits. And so then as a staff person, I could say, oh, well, I know that this executive is extremely passionate about this cause. So now I can introduce them to this not-for-profit that we already fund. But that internal relationship all of a sudden with that not-for-profit became so much more powerful because before I was the only steward of that not-for-profit on behalf of the company. But now... I could pass on that stewardship and or expand on that stewardship with another executive who cared. And that executive would obviously then engage their team members in with that not-for-profit. So it was just incredible to see how, again, it's all about relationships and connections and how linking those in with people and with the strategy of the company um, just creates a really, really good marriage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was it ever hard, like when you were working on partnerships and like working with charities? Because you came from, and I, this is me just like projecting on you. Okay. <laughs> when you're working with a not for profit partner, was it ever hard? And you had a team working on not with not for profit partners. Was it ever hard for you not to just like jump in feet first into that partnership and like work more closely rather than just like letting your team member run with it? Like, what was that like? Because you came from being the not-for-profit. Yes, all the time. I mean, I'm so passionate about so many different social issues um, that it's, and I held so many relationships with so many different not-for-profits. 
that it's hard and you know you have to operate from a place of like you have to be careful about being biased and that's extremely important when you work for a foundation or a corporation because the power dynamic between you and a not-for-profit is huge you hold the power to write a check that could like make or break their program for the rest of the year and um and so i really tried to be careful about me personally jumping into certain relationships or certain causes um, because of that, that possible bias. And also because um, there was just too many to to manage that if you get involved in one, um, you, you have to get involved in all of them at that same level. And it's just not possible. Um, so it was really helpful actually to have other team members and other, you know, executives really lead the charge with certain causes because then they could put in, you know, a certain level of energy in a different kind of way and at TELUS it was really um, powerful also because we weren't just funding these not-for-profits but for our TELUS days of giving we had staff engagement and volunteerism so we galvanized you know thousands of staff members to engage with these not-for-profits in various ways to improve on programs and or facilities. Um, and sometimes that was like the first, in, first time some staff members would start volunteering for a not-for-profit. Um, and also just um, different team members starting to then say, what if we were engaged with this not-for-profit for the rest of the year? What, what would it look like? Could we as individual team members start to fundraise for this organization. And that again was really powerful because then they were doing that on top of the grants that we were giving those folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so yeah. true. Um, when you think about fulfillment is mm. success, mm -hmm. because I mean, and especially because you were living in Vancouver, mm. you know, working for some major corporations, mm -hmm. And now you're living, you've moved away to a smaller town. Mm -hmm. um, what, like, whenever I think about that, I'm like, man, that's <laughs> hard. Like, <laughs> like, I get, you know, like, more simple way of life and, and enjoy, but it would be, it would be hard to, to leave like a large corporation. Mm -hmm. And like, frankly, you know, the ego that goes along with that, like in a healthy way, you know, being proud, but going and making that switch into a more, um, in a different light, into a different life. Mm -hmm. What, um, what prompted that for you? Mm -hmm. I asked two questions there and I realize it. <laughs> That's okay. That's great. I have been so lucky in my career. I, don't even know how I have scored the opportunities I've had, you know, from working at the Vancouver Foundation, working for TELUS, working for MEC, working for the best people, getting to do the best work in all of those scenarios, not just like working for those organizations, but actually getting really, really cool stuff done. Um, but like that was because of certain leaders that I had the opportunity to work with. Um, and it moving from Vancouver to the Sunshine Coast on the West Coast, it did feel like I'm now going to walk away from certain career opportunities. It did feel that way. How could it not? Especially when in Vancouver, there's very few headquartered companies there compared to say Toronto. And I worked for two of them. Um, I was very lucky in that regard. You know, you asked what is success versus fulfillment. And I think that links really well with the, the life choice I made because I think success for me, I oriented to meeting a goal 
Whereas fulfillment is more about how do you feel? How do you feel about the process? How do you feel about where you landed with meeting that goal? Um, and I have had incredible success and fulfillment in my life. And I keep having faith that that'll continue and in, and in different forms. And I guess what wasn't anticipated is COVID-19 and the pandemic has all of, all of a sudden, I think, created new opportunities for remote working that didn't necessarily exist prior to. But um, I love that you asked about fulfillment because I've never told you this, but my name actually basically means that I will be fulfilled. So my, my last name is Kubota or Kubota in Japanese. And the Japanese, you write from top to bottom. And so my last name starts from the top. And the last character of my last name is a field. And then the first letter of my first name starts with rice. And so my family intentionally wrote it that way so that rice will always grow in the field, meaning I will always have enough of what I need. I will always be fulfilled. Um, and I was very lucky that my grandmother um, named me, but uh, it was very intentional for them to name me Mariko or Mediko in Japanese um, because they knew of another Mediko that had gone overseas from Japan and had done well or was happy. But for my grandmother, she always wanted me to just be fulfilled, to have at least enough of everything. Um, and I feel very much that way, fulfilled in or I often say, I just feel so content mm. uh, and it feels very good to feel content for me. Um, it's, you know, it's not, it's not that I don't have ambition. I always do as well, but feeling content is, is a very good place to be, I think. And so moving to Powell River on the Sunshine Coast for, for, for me was a, a big values-based decision for my life and for the life of my family, because now I have two small children. I think I'm definitely a millennial that, you know, feels like I don't want to just like work really hard and then retire. I feel like as a millennial, I've chosen a life where I can still have a career, but I also can, you know, grow my own vegetables and I have easy access to nature. Um, and I have a very good community that I'm a part of. And those are all things that are aligned with my values and things that I really care about for the well-being of myself and my family. I feel like being content is underrated. Like I think we, mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. this like romanticization. I've talked about it a few times and I should probably stop it. You can tell it's on my mind is, is like this romanticization of yeah. like hustle and mm -hmm. the go and recognizing mm -hmm. uh, that there it's really important. And, and if not healthy to, mm -hmm. to recognize what makes you feel full and what makes you, um, makes you feel content and, um, I think it takes a great deal of wisdom to be able to figure that out and to understand that. Right. Um, well, I know I, when I reflect on my twenties, I can't believe how much I did and how crazy my schedule was all the time. And now in my thirties, I think you gain confidence too, which really helps. Of course, having children, it teaches you to be very present and it teaches you to be just with them with their needs currently and it makes you aware of what your own needs are as well being content for me lately is like did i feed my child did i bathe him <laughs> did i change his diaper enough so that he didn't get a rash <laughs> 
<laughs> probably having another human you're fully responsible for gives you that realization of like, I just want to see this, this tiny human happy, taken care of and without poop up its back. Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> It's about the simple things, but I, we have, um, very elderly neighbors. Mm -hmm. He's in her, his eighties and she's in her seventies and they just live this very simple life. What I'm always surprised by is they still have good conversations. Biggest fear. And I have a lot of biggest fears is, um, if you, when you go to a restaurant, you see the elderly couple sitting next to each other, not looking at each other and not talking to each other. Right. Ask my husband literally any time that happens. I'm like, we can't be those people. We'll be at a restaurant. Like the conversation will die for a second. And I'll, I'll be like, oh my God, like we're turning into. <laughs> when, when I look at their life, I often think it's because they know what's important to them. And, um, and they, they understand. Like, I remember once I, I mowed half his lawn on the street side. And the next day he's like, Hey, so you know, don't do that because I do it on Tuesdays and like, that's my thing. That's where he finds, you know, fulfillment and purpose in this small thing. And so I think it's really underrated, especially in year 2020 to recognize the small things that make us happy mm -hmm. and, um, and recognize the role it plays. And I mean, flip that back to a corporate perspective. Mm -hmm. Isn't that really what corporations are trying to deliver in social purpose? Yes. And you know, I think to me, it was the best move from going to like from working at MEC where we were all about outdoor activity to then moving to a community where I'm doing outdoor activity literally every single day and every weekend. And I do it really easily comparatively to when I lived in downtown Vancouver, even though Vancouver, you know, you have such access to nature. But um, but yeah, like I was like. I am now living actually my purpose at MEC even more now in this lifestyle. And then I've added on to it. You know, we, we have chickens, we have a huge garden and my child will never have known a time where he didn't have chickens. And, you know, he's one of those kids who absolutely knows where eggs come from. And to me, that's important. You're right. Kids don't know where eggs come from. <laughs> Because MEC's purpose was to help Canadians live an outdoor lifestyle, right? Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like there's a great deal of understanding on what that actually feels like and means. Mm -hmm. Being in a corporate purpose, you know, leadership space to understand the feeling that you're trying to resonate to. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think? Do you think your upbringing had anything to do with like your ability to get into the customer's lens and get into their minds and get into their emotions oh wow well I think my career is definitely in line with my upbringing as I identify as Japanese Canadian and as you know she her and I grew up not with a lot growing up not having a lot and then through some abuse in our household and my mother was diagnosed with cancer and uh, her prognosis of her breast cancer was very bad to the point that she actually was part of a trial to go to the Edmonton Cancer Research Center to get a stem cell transplant and she survived that but the chances of survival at that point were so low and um, after going through all of that she then eventually um, had the courage to leave my dad at that point and we went on 
uh, social assistance, also known as welfare, to um, live on our own. Um, and this was with my sister and myself and my older brother was um, living on his own at that time. But uh, there were a couple of things that were really profound through, for me through that experience. And those included my earliest experiences of philanthropy. And so we really struggled um, and financially. And uh, I had a piano teacher who taught me for free. And she had some other clients that were wealthier families. And they knew about us. And they kindly would write us checks to just offer us, I think, just additional funds to help us with whatever needs we had. But when you're on social assistance, you're not allowed to, you know, really receive anything else. You can't gain more money or else that gets clawed back from your checks. And so that was for me this first experience of what this system looks like and understanding how policy like social assistance works. And and I think just even feeling, being on the receiving end of like, these people don't even really know us and yet want to help us. Mm. And so it was very powerful for me to experience that. And I experienced that on a systems level, an organizational level when I worked at the Vancouver Foundation, where all of a sudden I, I was now on the, the giving end and not the receiving end. And it's always blown my mind to be able to look around, no matter where I work, to be like, am I really here? Like I'm amongst these people. This is what I do for a living. Like that is so profound for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, having experienced those things and wanting to give back and caring about social issues, but also understanding what that individual personal experience is like is really what I always still go you know, go down to. And it's about like when we fund a not-for-profit, what is the person that's going to be impacted by those funds? And also when it's the CEO who holds a lot of power to say, we, we should define what our social purpose is and have clarity on what impact we want to have in our community. I think about that person as that wealthy family or family member who would help us. And just how powerful that is that we're we're at the end of the day people um even within corporations and organizations and we make decisions and that because we have the infrastructure of an organization that decision and that impact is extremely powerful mm. i'm also uh, very aware of power dynamics between uh, not-for-profits and funders as a whole, whether it's a corporation or a, a foundation or a donor. And something I was very aware of, like working in the not-for-profit space is how how flexible not-for-profits sometimes are, are influenced to be because okay. of who holds the power. I'm very mindful of that when it comes to the giving lens, but I also feel that people that are in positions where they're providing funding, it's really important to have some lived experience of adversity to understand to strip away the ego side of giving because there is an emotional transaction there right like there's this emotional transaction when you give money away it makes you feel good whether it's a company a ceo an executive a major donor you know it's it's emotional resonance but to understand the lived experience enough to know that um and to to be a steward not just of the emotional transaction but of 
the impact right on the other side of it. Absolutely. I think relationships and lived experience are so important. And I don't think we talk about that enough that in order to build relationships between sectors, between people, it's about really appreciating where somebody's coming from and where they're coming from is because of the compilation of their lives, lived experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and so absolutely, when we think about customers and our reach, we need to be thinking about their lived experience and including the lived experience of the staff members who are thinking about them. What can we offer to our customers mm. at the end of the day as well? And the power dynamic one is, is huge. I remember hearing and reading about Dan Pallotta many years ago. He wrote the book Uncharitable. Mm-hmm. And he, you've just talked about the flexibility of nonprofits. He advocated that basically the restraints we put on not-for-profits is very hard on them and it limits their potential. And what he was sort of saying, for example, is that, um, you know, because of our capitalistic system, for example, you could become an educated person and then go and work for a Fortune 500, make a lot of money, and then start your own foundation and then give away money to make impact rather than being the same person who then goes to choose to be the executive director of a not-for-profit. You can see the difference in sort of status you get. You're going to get the status from being the person who becomes wealthy and starts the foundation, gives the money to the not-for-profit, rather than being the leader who leads the charge on that not-for-profit and has to struggle to receive money and figure out how to make the structure of not-for-profits where you're not allowed to earn your own cash, meaning you cannot make revenue to serve your purpose. So you must always be in a dynamic where you are uh, receiving donations and gifts from individuals or, for, or from organizations. So that structure in and of itself limits our potential to a certain degree, which is why we've seen, you know, I think the fruition of things like social enterprises, mm-hmm. where social enterprises are very mission and values driven organizations, but they very much like, so they operate almost like a not-for-profit, but they are able to gain revenue with through a product or service and then funnel it back into the services they provide through the not-for-profit means that they have. 